Thanks for joining us for this week's episode of The Trail, from New Hampshire to the White House. Anyone who wants to be president has to come through New Hampshire first, and no one covers New Hampshire politics like WMUR. I'm WMUR political director Adam Sexton, and we hope you can join us every week for this podcast. And our guest this evening is New York City Mayor Bill de Blasio. Tonight we'll be getting to know Mayor de Blasio and where he stands on key issues. At the start of our show, I'll be asking the candidates some questions, and then after a break, we'll have our studio audience ask their questions in a town hall format. But before we begin with that, let's take a quick look at the candidate's biography. Bill de Blasio was born in Manhattan in 1961 and raised in Cambridge, Massachusetts. He graduated from New York University and Columbia University's School of International and Public Affairs. In 1989, de Blasio was part of David Dinkins' successful run for mayor of New York City and worked in his administration. He later served as regional director at the U.S. Department of Housing and Urban Development. De Blasio was also a member of the school board in Brooklyn and headed Hillary Clinton's winning campaign for U.S. Senate in 2000. About two years later, he was elected to the New York City Council, representing a district in Brooklyn. Then, in 2009, as the city's public advocate, he took office as mayor of New York City in 2014 and was later re-elected for a second term. As mayor, his legislative accomplishments include initiatives like universal pre-K and expanded paid sick leave. Mayor de Blasio is married to Sherlane McRae and has two children. Mayor de Blasio, thanks for joining us on Conversation with Thank the Candidate. Thank you so much, Adam. We appreciate you being here. So you obviously have executive experience to rival even governors in this race, uh, and you had that time in the city council, so arguably some quote-unquote legislative experience as well. But it all comes in one place, albeit the cultural and uh, financial capital of the United States, mm -hmm. but one place, New York City. So how do you relate to those voters who are outside of that bubble? Well, Adam, it's the most diverse place on earth. So in New York, I think you see so much of the issues, the concerns, the needs of people all over New Hampshire, all over the country. So what I have found is that working people, whether they live on the East Coast, West Coast, North, South, rural, urban, working people have so much in common at this point in history. Folks, middle class folks, working class folks are often struggling to make ends meet and they are not confident about what the next generation is going to experience. That means the American dream is not working the way it was supposed to. And I'm running for president because in New York, we've been able to make big changes in people's lives. That executive experience really matters. It's not just policy papers for me. It's like we've done things that actually change people's lives. Pre-K for all, as you heard, $15 minimum wage, paid sick days for working people. There are many examples. But the fact is, to your core question, I actually think this country is not as divided as a lot of times the commentary suggests. I actually think people are looking for a lot of the same things all over this country. And there's tremendous frustration that no matter how hard people are working, their quality of life is not what it should be. And a lot of times people look to Washington and they don't see Washington on their side. They see it on the side of the wealthy and the big corporations. I've proven as an executive that you can make real change in people's lives. That's why I'm actually optimistic about the future of this country, because I've seen you can make change fast if you actually know how to do it and you're willing to take on some of the powers that be. That's what I've done. Even though 2016 was a close race, one of the narratives coming out of that election loss was the Democrats were becoming too coastal, too well-educated. Is the party at risk of losing its working class base? Oh, I think it's already been a problem, Adam. Um, this Democratic Party is supposed to be the party of working people. 
And when I ran for mayor, I said, we're going to put money back in the hands of working people. We're going to take on uh, that tale of two cities that we were living in New York City at the time, and we're living all over this country, basically. So, yeah, if a voter looks at the Democratic Party and doesn't see that it's the party of working people, that means Democrats are doing something wrong. And in 2016, the message wasn't there. The vision wasn't there. Uh, folks, so many folks, including Democrats, stayed home. Or, or voted for third-party candidates. And this is the crux of this year. You know, there's so much talk about electability this year. Um, to me, we really have to think about first things first. The Democratic Party, when it stood for working people, had the support and the allegiance of folks all over the country, rural and urban, every region. Labor union members felt that the Democratic Party was on their side. In 2016, even a lot of members of labor unions stayed home or ended up voting the other way because they didn't feel the Democrats were really willing to make change and go up against powerful interests on behalf of working people. My whole campaign is to say, let's get back to who we're supposed to be as Democrats and not just be the party of working people in words, but prove it through actions. I've done that in New York. I've proven it can be done. And I'll tell you, when people's lives change, this is the great example of Franklin Delano Roosevelt I always use. Um, he won the hearts and minds of Americans, not just with words, because he actually helped them in that moment of crisis and folks knew it. They knew he was on their side. Uh, folks in my city have seen that kind of change, too, that they've really been able to feel things that help their lives, change their lives. That's when Democrats are at our best. And that's what we have to be in 2020. Electability literally will connect with whether we have a message of change, not status quo, and whether people can feel in their hearts we're going to do something different to help them and their families. One of the reasons you've been able to enact your agenda in New York City is the city has tremendous wealth. The funds are there for you to be able to do things. How are you going to transport that to Washington, D.C. without raising taxes on the middle class? Well, it's not the middle class who should be paying more, Adam. It is the wealthy and the corporations. They just got a huge tax giveaway from Trump and the Congress. That has to be repealed. Uh, we have to go back to the kind of tax rates on folks who are multimillionaires that existed in the 1950s and 60s in this country. And by the way, we know that when there's fairness, when there's equality in our society, people can tell. When those who have done very well, often with federal help, right? A lot of times the rich got richer because the federal government helped them in any number of ways, including tax loopholes and very generous tax rates. If we go back to the idea that the wealthy should pay their fair share in taxes, we have an opportunity in this country to invest in everyday people. And the fact is that when we invest in everyday people, when we invest in communities, that's when you see folks actually thinking their country is on their side. So no, we don't need to ask more of middle class people or working class people. We need to right the wrong of the last 40 years, honestly, where uh, the rich have just had every conceivable advantage in Washington. And working people have taken on the chin. I mean, here, when I go around New Hampshire, when I go around this country, what everyday people tell me is they feel like they've been stuck for a long time. They don't feel like their families have been moving ahead. They've, they've had too many times when it was tough to pay the bills. Too many times it was hard to get health care. Again, very worried about their kids and whether their kids will even do as well as they did. Worried they might even do worse. So I think in that context, if we say, hey, one, one small, small group of this country has done well and everyone else feels kind of stuck, that's not the America we believe in. Let's do something very different. The, the resources there, I always say there's plenty of money in this world. 
and there's plenty of money in this country, it's just in the wrong hands. And it's in the wrong hands because of the decisions in Washington that created that huge inequality. And that's not good for the future of this country. All right, Mr. Mayor, thanks for answering Thank these you, questions. Adam. The tougher ones await with I'm our live studio audience. And coming up after the break, we will bring our town hall voters into this conversation. Stay with us. Life's beautiful moments, sunsets, landscapes, wildlife. That's WMUR's You Local Facebook group. Join this growing community and browse the stunning images captured by viewers like you. Or share your own. Get started at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash WMUR9. Go to groups and join You Local. See you there. We're going to bring our live town hall audience in, and we're going to start with questions right away with Mr. Gary Evans. Hi, welcome to New Hampshire. Thank you, Gary. Uh, I first want to say I, I, I'm so discouraged by uh, the lack of progress on my issue, but it's guns. Mm. Do you think you could give me five things that you think you could do to help solve the gun violence problem in this country? Yeah. Gary, this right now is something that people are feeling in a very different way, and this is why I am not hopeless at all. I actually think change can happen. And I want to talk to you as a parent what I'm hearing from parents all over this country. For the first time, parents are scared to send their kids to school. And kids, think about this, kids are going through active shooter drills as a normal part of the school year all over this country. There's something profoundly wrong. Now, the reason I say that is not to celebrate that, but to say people are now feeling this in a very different way. So what are the things we can do? Well, on a policy level, I believe the majority views of the American people are the things that would actually work. The more extensive background checks, waiting periods, assault weapons ban. Those three changes, the American people want those changes. We can achieve them. We saw an example in Florida that should give us hope that after that tragedy in Parkland, those students who made their voices heard so passionately and everyone said, oh, no, no, the Florida legislature couldn't possibly act. But they did. They felt the pressure and act. As president, what I would do is, first of all, go to the states where those recalcitrant senators are. And I don't care if it's a purple state or a red state, because I know the people more and more want to see those common sense changes. But what's lacking is presidential leadership that calls out people and helps people make their voices heard and puts pressure on those swing votes, which are only a handful, really, that we need to win. And then to think about another thing we could do that I think would profoundly change the situation, it's something we're doing in New York, which is uh, neighborhood policing, or you could call it whatever you want around the country, but the idea is to bring police and community together in a much closer alliance to break down some of the barrier that's existed in too many places over the years because that also helps us get guns off the streets when there's a really close working relationship and dialogue between community members and police. Remember, who's threatened by illegal guns? Who's threatened by the proliferation of guns all over this country? Civilians for sure, law enforcement as well. They're often the ones who bear the brunt the most. We have tough gun safety laws in New York and we're the safest big city in America right now. Crime has gone down on my watch six years in a row because those tough gun safety laws work. But another piece of the equation, and I would work for this as president, I would support it with federal policies and federal funding, is the kinds of things that help uh, our police and our community work much more closely together so we can find those illegal guns and get them off the streets. Because we still have, have places like New Hampshire where people are going to drive from New York and buy whatever they want. 
That's the problem around this whole country. And what we know is we need a national vision for safety. But I want you to remember this part about parents and kids is so important. And I'm saying this uh, as a father. Uh, I didn't have to think this way when my kids went to school. There were not active shooter drills for them. And when you see millions upon millions of Americans, mothers and fathers, having to go through that pain of worrying about their kids, I think that's going to create uh, a kind of an indignation and an energy for change. And, and look, some of these senators are trying to resist it, but the power of the NRA is starting to crumble. And the last thing I'd say to you, because you asked for different approaches, one of the things we did in New York, I think we should do all over the country, we've got to stop funding the gun industry with public pension fund money. We have taken pension fund money out of that industry. That industry and the NRA go hand in hand. They each support each other. You know, there's no city government, state government, county government, university foundation. None of them should have their pension investments in the gun industry. That's another tangible thing everyone can work for to make sure that we end that unholy alliance. We break through that political logjam. And I think the voices of the people are going to get us the rest of the way. Okay. Thank, Thank you. you. Thanks, Gary. Next question comes from Carolyn Morrill. Hi there. Uh, as president, what is your top priority and how do you plan on accomplishing it? So, Carolyn, of course, that's like the most fundamental question, the top mm -hmm. priority. And I want to tell you, when I look at this country right now, and I'm, I could obviously tell you the great existential threat is climate change. So I will certainly say that's the thing we have to put a whole different kind of approach into. We're doing in New York the Green New Deal. We're implementing the Green New Deal right now. And it's making a huge difference. And that's what I would do as president. But when you say the top priority in terms of the lives of the American people, I go back to the fact that working people's lives are just not good enough in America today. And I go back to the fact that so many people I talk to in New Hampshire and all over the country tell me that what are they experiencing? They're, they're working really hard. They're not making enough money. They don't have enough security now or particularly for their retirement. They're worried about health care and the cost of health care. And God forbid something really serious happened. They're worried about the next generation. And so I think the problem in America today is this country is not supporting working people the way we used to. The whole notion even of being in the middle class, that's not a secure idea the way it used to be. That once you got to the middle class, you were there to stay and things were going to be great. We have to address that in a really aggressive way, in my view. So when I became mayor, I looked at this reality in my city and I said, we've got to actually create a different kind of policy that puts money back in the hands of working people. When we talk about pre-K for all, this is one of my proudest achievements. For so many working families, they couldn't get early childhood education for their kids. They couldn't afford it. And if they shelled out that money, they weren't going to have a lot less. So we made that something available to everyone for free. That lightened their load. That helped a lot of people get to work who couldn't get to work otherwise unless their kids were taken care of. When we did things like $15 minimum wage, that helped a lot of people to have a better life. We've created a dynamic where there's more that you can depend on. For example, one of the things we're doing now, because we all know healthcare for every family is, is a profound, the deepest concern, both first and foremost, if you have your health, you have everything. But if you don't have your health, the danger of it even bankrupting a family, that's on the minds of people all over this country. In New York right now, we're saying, we have to act, so we're guaranteeing health care 
for anyone who doesn't have insurance. Literally saying, we're going to give you a health care card and you get a primary care doctor assigned to you at one of our public hospitals or clinics so that you don't end up like so many millions of Americans right now, the only doctor they have is the emergency room. And that's the last place to go for healthcare and the most expensive place for the taxpayer. So I think the, the, the issue that animates me is trying to restore a good standard of living for working class and middle class people, more security, more ability for that next generation to do better. And we can do that if we're willing to make some big changes in this country. And I'm hopeful because I saw what we could do in just a few years in the nation's largest city, the changes that could reach millions and millions of people, I know we could do them for the whole country. Thank you. Thank you, Carolyn. Thank you, Carolyn. Next up is Joan Whitworth. Good hey. evening, Mayor. Hey, Joan. President Trump's trade war with China is costing U.S. businesses and farmers billions of dollars in lost sales, as well as taxpayers even more due to higher prices and the subsidies being paid to farmers to help them survive the loss of their markets. What will you do as president to deal with this situation? Joan, this is a, a, such an important question. I've talked to farmers who are petrified that it's not just that they've lost their markets today, but that they'll never come back. And, and folks who are saying to me that these policies literally could destroy their way of life. So, Joan, I think the good news is I know the first thing to do is the exact opposite of what Donald Trump is doing. <laughs> He's given us the negative roadmap, right? Um, this trade war was started without any sense of a strategy, a vision for where it was going. I think a lot of us are frustrated with China. I'm frustrated with China on many fronts. But don't start something unless you know where it's going and how to manage it and how to get it to a positive outcome. This president didn't do that. And so what's happening is who's taking it on the chin? Farmers and consumers. And now there's a threat of global recession. What I would do as president is play to our strengths, not our weaknesses. We as a country, we are still the place that so much of the global economy revolves around. We're a place that so many people and companies from all over the world feel they have to be present in the United States. And we therefore can set the rules in a very, very different way. But in the end, we also do need the alliances that made us strong around the world. And it's almost shocking how this president has seemed to, you know, day by day, destroy and undermine our alliances, which helped us to be as strong a country as we have been. If we're going to move to change things in China, we don't do it alone. We do it in alliance with, say, the European Union, as an obvious example. We create a common vision, which takes some patience. I can tell you one thing as a leader, and I represent 8.6 million people. You have to have patience. You actually have to have restraint. This may sound like old-fashioned ideas, but they, they are important in leadership. And you build alliances to put the pressure on China that is needed to get some of the changes we need from them. You build alliances to put the economic pressure on Russia, which is extremely vulnerable, to stop interfering in our elections, stop interfering in other countries, case by case, using that power of diplomacy and alliance, and using the fact that we're still the economic powerhouse we, we have been, but we're not going to be if we lose those alliances and we engage in trade wars recklessly for no vision. The last thing I'll say to you, uh, if we're gonna address trade, and there's, there's something I say that we all need to take very seriously. You know, Donald Trump has negotiated a new NAFTA treaty. It's just NAFTA 2.0, it has a different name, but it's the same concept, and in my view, makes the same mistakes, we're gonna lose a lot of jobs. 
and overly empowers multinational corporations rather than working people. Trade treaties in the future should actually be about American workers. They haven't been. They've been of and by and for the corporations. The vision should be what helps American workers, what keeps our jobs, what builds more jobs, what helps people have good wages, good benefits. That's what trade policy should be about, but I'll tell you, it hasn't been in this country and it's time for a change. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Joan. Next up is Terrence Skinner. I'm, I'm drifting to the oh, water. Get some water. Okay, <laughs> so the mayor's going to get some water, and next question we're going to have will come from Terrence Skinner. Go ahead, Terrence. Hello, Mayor. Thank you for being here. Thank you, Terrence. Uh, your relationship with NYPD, the largest police force in the country, has been described as strained, combative, and frosty. Same can be said for the current president towards the intelligence community. How can you assure voters that you're the right candidate to unite this country when many Americans believe that these type of adversarial relationships are what is dividing us? Terrence, uh, I appreciate the honesty of your question, but I'm, I'm going to say those descriptions, that may be accurate for my relationship with some of the very vocal, and I think mistaken, leaders of certain police unions, but not of the rank and file of our police force, and especially not of the leadership of our police force. You know, I, I am so proud to have brought in extraordinary leaders to the NYPD. Bill Bratton first, and now Jimmy O'Neill, who's a 35-year veteran of the NYPD. And I have been supporting our police leaders consistently. We now have 2,000 more officers on patrol in New York than we had a few years ago. We are, we're the safest big city in America. Crime has gone down six years in a row. And we've healed the relationship between our police and our community, which was really strained for a long time and needed that healing. And that's been that strategy of neighborhood policing that's made all the difference. Uh, with the comparison, I just have to, with real respect, say, I don't see the comparison to what Donald Trump has done which is to ignore his own intelligence leaders, to put them down publicly, uh, to, to not listen to the advice of people who knew a whole lot more than he does. When I talk to the leadership of the NYPD, I understand they are amongst the greatest experts in the world in policing and public safety, and I honor that and respect it. We've made decisions strategically together that obviously have worked. What Donald Trump does is shocking to me. Uh, ignoring or even belittling the folks who have the kind of information experience to keep our country safe. And therefore, I think endangering us. And, and it's not supposed to be that way. You know, we should never get numb here. Uh, I think sometimes we see sort of a front after a front from President Trump and tweet after tweet, and it's a little tempting to, you know, just get used to it. This is not the way it's supposed to be. So I would argue to you that uh, respecting the folks who are the leadership of these agencies is crucial to the changes we need. But I would also say to you that if you're going to make real productive changes, like addressing an American challenge, we know we've needed real reform, real criminal justice reform, reforming in the way we police to end some of the problems of the past and bring police and community together. Some people are going to like that, some people are not. And if you're going to lead and if you're going to make change, you're always going to find some people who disagree. But I'll tell you something. When I uh, said, you know, there was a policy of stop and frisk, for example, it was a very controversial, very aggressive policing strategy. I said it was wrong. A lot of the critics said, if you take it away, there'll be chaos, there'll be disorder. A leader says, no, I have a vision of actually going someplace better and helping people come together. We got rid of that broken policy. The city got safer six years in a row. And when you talk to folks at the community level now, 
they say their relationship with their police officers is much closer, much warmer, much more personal. And I want us to get to that day all over this country where, and I always use this example, I want people to think of police officers everywhere in this country, no matter who the background of the people involved is, that people think of our police officers as their guardians. And our officers think of the people they serve in neighborhoods and towns and cities as their own family. And that's a vision we could reach in this country, and we've begun to show it's possible in New York. Thank you. Thanks, Thanks Terrence. Uh, we've got about 90 seconds left in the TV portion, okay. Mr. Mayor. I want to ask you, on that front, uh, taking care of New York City, you have to have an anti-terror policy, and that's yes. one of the few mayors probably in the, in the U.S. who has to do that. How will that inform you as Commander-in-Chief? I'll tell you, number one terror target in America, that's what New York City is. And so we have constantly built up an intelligence gathering apparatus and the ability to be close to our communities as well, because it's not just traditional intelligence that matters, it is grassroots relationships with communities where you often get the tips and the information that stop things before they happen. So I've learned how much of keeping us safe is, it's not just top down, it's grassroots up. And I've also learned how much we need all of the different players, the FBI, uh, the NYPD, state police, everyone working on the same page, which is not something that was always the case in this country and certainly not around the world. A president needs to get the different countries of the world in alliance with us to share information, to work in concert. That is how we defeat terrorism. And that daily briefing is something that you get uh, as, as the mayor, essentially? Of course. And, you know, I have a security status to get some very sensitive information and to understand just how real some of these threats are, but also to see that if we are smart and coordinated and proactive, we can protect ourselves, and we've been able to do that in New York. Hey, Facebook recently made some changes. Now you're missing out on lots of content from WMUR, but it's easy to stay connected. Go to WMUR's Facebook page, tap follow, then see first. That's it, just two taps brings you back in the know. We're going to jump right back in to our questions from our town hall voters, and we're going to start with Ann Ackerman. Hello. Good hey, evening. Ann. How you doing? What would you recommend to my college students to examine about the electoral process? Oh, wow. Ann, yeah, you are asking a big and important question. So I think um, for young folks in particular, uh, we actually need to restore some hope um, I think it has been a moment in history, and I say this to my own kids, 24 and 21 years old. Think of what they've come up with. They've come up with the threat of global warming, um, an existential threat deeper than anything that I think any other generation has previously experienced. We all grew up having to duck under the desks and do the air raid drills. And, and with us, Yeah, and, we, and there was an honest fear God forbid there was a nuclear war, but it was also something we did not, thank God, experience. Global warming, people are actually feeling it right now. They're feeling it right now. Every time Hurricane Sandy in New York uh, was just devastating to our city. You know, we lost dozens of people and, and neighborhoods literally just destroyed. And think about the wildfires and the floods and everything that people experienced around this country. Our young people came up with that. They came up with the Great Recession and the, the aftermath, the, the, the student debt crisis, which I can tell you, for all the thrifty New Englanders in the audience, my two kids are so thrifty, and it's because they grew up in that age of fear of debt. Um, so I think today's young people are very sober, um, very serious about what they're dealing with, but we have to give them hope. 
that these things can change. So the electoral process, for a lot of people, it has been over the years like, oh, you know, you hear these famous lines, you must know them, you know, oh, it doesn't matter if I vote, oh, the candidates are all alike, you know, my vote won't change anything. Mm -hmm. Those are really dangerous ideas in a democracy. And I think it's up to all of us to go and show people that change can happen. And this is something I say, you know, I'm mayor of the nation's largest city. It's not an easy place, but I'm actually more optimistic today than six years ago when I took office because I've seen that you actually can change some of these things. You know, we talked about uh, pre-K for every child. That's one example. When you talk to the parents who never would have had pre-K for their kid and then they got it and they talk about how their child blossomed. And uh, we saw it, with, you know, in my family, my wife, Shirlane, and I saw it with our, our daughter, Kiara, and our son, Dante, a pre-K just changed their lives. They were blessed enough to have full-day pre-K. You see that something done through the political process, there was an election, something changed because of that election, and it actually made people's lives better. And then people start to think, wait a minute, maybe my vote does matter. Maybe getting involved actually can change something. I think it's incumbent on all of us to help our young people recognize that they could reshape this country for the better. And their presence, particularly in the 2020 election, could be the decisive element. So I say, talk to people about the electoral process, but reminding them of the hope and the good in it. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks, Ann. Next question comes from Hella Ross. Thank you, Adam. Hi, Mayor. Nice to see you. Good to see you. Thank you. The vast majority of your constituents do not support your presidential run. They want you to continue to address their many inner city concerns to include deteriorating public housing, worsening homelessness, as well as the affordable housing crisis, not to mention the antiquated subway infrastructure. Please list your most major policy platforms that you've implemented during your five and a half year tenure besides free pre-K school and the $15 minimum wage for New York City employees that qualify you to become president. I want to speak to both pieces of your question really quickly. Um, as I said, we're the safest big city in America, and that came from a series of decisions that I made working with our police leadership that fundamentally changed policing in New York City, made us safer, improved our social fabric. I mean, it all begins with safety and it all begins with health. That's one of the most fundamental things I've done. Half a million more jobs in my city since I became mayor because we made the city safer, we improved the schools, we did a lot of the things that people wanted to see who were creating businesses, who were creating jobs, made it a better quality of life in our city. Um, improving our school system, not just with pre-K, we have the highest graduation rate we've ever had, and we keep seeing progress in terms of our ability to educate our children better. Uh, biggest affordable housing program New York City's ever had. So I think the things I put into place have changed the lives of millions of people and across all of the different areas that really affect people's everyday lives. And I mentioned healthcare, the fact that we're guaranteeing healthcare for folks who don't have insurance. One of the biggest questions in this country, how does everyone get access to healthcare? We're finding a new way to do it right now in New York. Mm -hmm. um, to the issues you raise, they're very real issues. Uh, the subway system in New York, the mass transit system is run by the state of New York. But I worked with our governor, who I don't always agree with, but I worked with him. And we passed a very important new plan in April uh, to fix our subways once and for all, to fund them properly. We proved we could get something done that had not been possible in the past. But the other issues you raise, along with mass transit, homelessness, affordable housing, public housing, here's another reason I'm running. 
I've been working hard on all those issues. But you can't do it alone in New York, and you can't do it alone in New Hampshire. We're not going to be able to fix these fundamental problems in our country by asking states and localities to somehow come up with the resources and the, the legal ability to do these things that we just don't have. And so the answer often is in Washington, D.C. But for decades, Washington, D.C. has been either paralyzed or unwilling to act. Mm -hmm. I'm running for president because I think we need to change this country. I can't fix the problems of my people without an active federal partnership. I think a lot of the problems here in New Hampshire cannot be fixed if the federal government is not involved directly and actively, and it hasn't been. So uh, I say to people in my city, I'm running because we need a very different dialogue in this country. We need a very different vision of what can be done. I say as a proud Democrat, our party needs to present something different if we expect to win. And if we don't do those things right, then unfortunately I'll do everything I know how to do to help my people have a better life. But like every other leader in America, I'll have one hand tied behind my back because the federal government will not be there. Let's see. Thank you. Okay, thank, thank you. Helen. Appreciate you it. Much. Appreciate it. Next question comes from Kenneth Berlin. Welcome. Hey, How are you? How's it going? Okay, thank you. This is a little different type subject. All right. We got variety. And I, re I reworded it, so I'm hoping I get it right. <laughs> How would you go about restoring our maligned intelligence agencies mm -hmm. that have been verbally abused uh, by this president? And how would you get back the respect, the trust, and morale that they have been hurting on and that they need to get back to where they were prior to him taking office and in that vein are there any people and I know you, you won't but are there any people or types of people who you would like to have in your cabinet as like uh, Secretary of State a CIA director uh, Homeland Security director you don't have to give me names right. but are you looking do you have anybody in mind or people that could fit that Sure. Kenneth, uh, first of all, you're, you're hitting such an important point because think about the threats that we face as Americans right now. We have seen the impact of terror in this country, and, and no one knows it better than those of us in New York who went through 9-11. And, and the fact that we're still the number one terror target in America informs my thinking all along that we need a highly respected, engaged intelligence community and leadership of that community that we show a lot of respect for and most importantly listen to and there'll be different viewpoints that's okay that's democracy right any elected leader is supposed to listen to different viewpoints make the best decision for the people but the fact is all of those institutions we depend on have been under attack by this president and it's corrosive and a lot of great uh, leaders a lot of great people who work to help all of us have been leaving because they don't feel they can do their job anymore so that's not acceptable. And I can tell you, working with some of the greatest um, intelligence folks and public safety folks in this country and working closely with our federal partners, if you show overt respect, if you say we're all in this together, if the leader sends that message, you can heal. You can overcome it. I, I know a lot of great people who would do wonderful work in the cabinet, uh, in the intelligence community as well. I'm not going to name names. You're right. You're a smart man. But, uh, but I can tell you there's no lack of great public servants in this country. Uh, I want folks who are going to focus on cooperation between all pieces of the intelligence community and our public safety apparatus, which again has not been the case for too long. We've missed some really 
um, some tragedies happened because things were missed because of rivalries between agencies. I want folks who are going to create collaboration and mutual respect. We've done that in New York. We have huge agencies often didn't get along. We've said, hey, everyone, we're wearing the same uniform here. But we also have to do that in our relationship with the rest of the world. And repairing those alliances and getting the intelligence communities of our allied countries to really work in concert with us. That's how we protect ourselves going forward. Thank God there's still a lot of people who want to do that work. And I actually think a lot of people, when they get told it's all clear, we're going back to some normalcy and some respect, a lot of people will come in and be ready to do that work to serve their nation. Thank, thank you. you. Thanks, Ken. Next question comes from Nancy Keene. Hey, Nancy. Um, well, thank you for coming here and giving us this wonderful opportunity. Thank you very much. Um, we keep hearing the words entitlement when they talk about Social Security mm. rather than a pension plan that we are entitled to yep. and we have paid for all of our working lives. Um, what, and I keep hearing that it's going to run out by 2034. I hope I'll still be around then. So what are you going to do to protect Social Security? I'll, I really appreciate that question. You will be around. I hope <laughs> Okay, <laughs> I have faith. Uh, this is something that, sh that so many people are worried about who have worked so hard, and it gets back to this whole point, people have worked hard their whole life and now don't feel secure, which is not what this country should allow. Right? We're supposed to be a place where folks who worked hard to you know, get, especially those folks who worked hard their whole life to get to the middle class and they thought they were there, that they can actually have a secure retirement. I have to say, this is very personal for me because my mom worked her whole life for a lot of my upbringing. Uh, she was the single parent and she worked hard and she thought she had put together a secure retirement. And one day in the 1980s, after she had retired, a letter came from the last company she worked for saying her pension was canceled. And this, I have such respect for my mom, may she rest in peace. She worked so hard, she did everything right. And the shock that she felt that something she thought was sign sealed delivered was just gone in an instant. And she felt powerless. And I think a lot of people right now are going through that with Social Security. They don't know what's going to happen. So here's why I say, first of all, raise the income cap. Raise the income cap so we can put the resources into Social Security that should be there to begin with. And it's another example of how the federal government has favored those who already have a lot of money time and time again. And then on top of that, if there needs to be federal backing, there should be for something as essential as the retirement of tens of millions of people. This gets back to this point, and I, I make it because we've kind of got to jolt ourselves into recognition. We've been sold a bill of goods. For 40 years, working class people, middle class people in America have essentially been stuck in place. Just look at real wages, real income, essentially been stuck. While the wealthiest, the corporations, Wall Street, they've been doing great, they've been doing better than ever, that phrase we all grew up with, the rich get richer, has come true in a way we haven't seen in a hundred years in this country. We've got to change it. So when it comes to spending money on the retirement of hardworking people, anyone who says entitlement, like it's a dirty word, anyone who says there's not enough money, we can't do that, I say there's plenty of money in this world. And there's plenty of money in this country. It's just in the wrong hands. The folks who did that hard work deserve a secure retirement. And we've got to be blunt about that. There's no compromising on that. And as a Democrat, 
I not only believe that, and I think that's right for people, but I also believe if you want to talk about how we change things in 2020, Democrats have to say it as plainly as that. There's no way in the world we're going to allow Social Security to be compromised because that's not something Republicans can say. Thank you. Thank Thanks, you Nancy. Much. We have a question along these same lines coming in from the online world on Facebook. Frank Falco asks, when you say you'll tax the rich, what's the bottom baseline for being rich and what's the rate they're going to pay? So the, I start over a million dollars. That's where you see the increases under my tax plan. At $2 million and above, it goes back to the rates that were common in this country in the 1950s and 60s. And why do I say that? Because, first of all, I want people to understand, here we're in a country today where we're worried about whether Social Security will be there, where hardworking people are not getting ahead, there's tremendous fear about the future, and people can't pay for the health care they need, and, and this is not the quality of life that Americans deserve. So we've got to do something different. When you look at a time in our history when we actually did pretty well at uh, investing in people, at people having uh, some sharing in the prosperity of our nation, well, that was in those years. And that tax rate, that higher tax rate for the wealthy was one of the reasons why. It allowed the federal government to invest in infrastructure, something that every state in this country needs is those investments, roads, bridges, mass transit, all the things that people need, but also that will determine whether we have a successful economy in the future. We're not going to be able to do that if we keep giving away the store to the wealthy and the corporations. So my tax plan says, let's go back to the one thing that actually worked. Fairer, higher taxes on the wealthy, not on working people, not on middle class people, on the folks who actually have gotten favored time and time again for decades. And it's not asking a lot. Look, if, if you got giveaway after giveaway after giveaway for decades, and then we come along and say, hey, it's time to give some of that back, that's not unfair in a world where so many working people are barely making ends meet. So uh, I think this is what people want. By the way, this amazing thing that we should give credit to all Americans for, when you ask this question of Americans all over the country, Democrats, Republicans, and independents, are the wealthy paying their fair share in taxes? You find clear majorities all parties, all philosophies, all regions of the country. And yet we just saw the biggest tax giveaway to the wealthy and corporations in a generation two years ago. That needs to be repealed. We need to put the tax rates in place that actually demand of the wealthy a fair share. And that's how we start to transform this country. Next question comes from Jesse Aubin. Hi, sir. Hey, Jesse. <clears throat> um, I'm also a father. I have uh, two boys, 12 and eight. And um, one of them's autistic. So he often uses assistive technology to uh, do schoolwork and, and use the web. Yeah. Um, in late June, a report came out that found that none of the presidential candidate websites, Republican or Democrat, were fully accessible to mm. the disabled and the technologies they use. Um, and then I did a little more digging, and you find out that there's over almost 40 million disabled uh, voters in the U.S. So I'm like, well, when my son's you know at the age when he can make that decision, in today's landscape, he couldn't be properly uh, up to speed and know the candidates because he can't access their websites, which is a big source of information on you guys. So my question is, uh, would you commit to um, improving your website so it's fully accessible and, and challenge the other candidates to do the same? Jesse, thank you. First of all, as a parent, I just want to say, you know, bringing up kids, being a parent is not easy anytime. And it's not easy in this day and age, I would argue. 
But when you have a child with a special need, there's even much more that you have to deal with. I just want to say to you, you know, my respect, because uh, it's not easy, but thank you for what you do to support your family. Um, so first of all, yes, I accept, and I'm sorry that we hadn't done that already, and we will fix it on our website, and I'll, I'll challenge the other candidates, but I'll do you one better. The city of New York, I'll instruct our folks to fix the websites there if they don't have that capacity as well, because it's a really important point, and, and hopefully that will help encourage everyone. I do want to say that you're right. There's a huge number of people in this country who have gone unrecognized, tens of millions of folks with disabilities. And these issues should be front and center in this election. And what I found as a chief executive, there's a lot of things we can do differently. For kids on the autism spectrum, we have found our public school system has created a whole host of new schools, like literally schools or programs within schools that really work. Public schools that are serving those kids in ways that was not done even 10 years ago. Uh, that's something we should do all over the country. And broader uh, level for folks with disabilities, we found that there's a really important role for government to play, both hiring with people with disabilities, encouraging, incentivizing, pushing the private sector to do the same, making sure mass transit's more accessible. One of the things we did in New York is we said to uh, the taxi industry that half of the taxi cabs had to be wheelchair accessible, another type of disability, but it changed everything for folks in terms of getting around. So I hope the, and I believe these issues will be front and center in this election. We have some real examples of change that people, I hope, can be inspired by. Um, but I will take your really powerful point and use it as a reason to go and address this better. Thanks, sir. Thank you. Thanks, Jesse. Next question comes from Elizabeth Radisson. Hey, Elizabeth. Hi, good evening. Thank you for being here tonight, Thank Mayor. Um, I'm known for asking really, really tough questions. I'm ready, and <laughs> and I, I, I totally had one prepared for uh, about your approval rating in New York. But Saturday, I had a moment with my family and you where you made an impact and so I'm going to give you an opportunity to speak on that impact Thank and you. that was because um, we were at a picnic and you came up to my two little children who were the only little black kids at the picnic three and a half year old twins and you came up to my daughter and said hello beautiful and for a girl of color who doesn't hear that in an all-white area mm. that was huge mm -hmm. and so my question is how do you feel that as your roles as a husband and a father in a biracial family, yeah. how has that prepared you to lead in such a racially divided nation? Thank you. And uh, I'm really happy that, you know, for her that meant something. And, and that's one of the lessons I learned, being in a multiracial family. Uh, I think as Americans, we, we're trying to still learn each other. We're trying to still understand all the people that make up this country, just from our own personal experience. And when I first started dating my wife, Sherlane, we're now, by the way, we're celebrating 25th wedding anniversary this year, so come a long way, and it's been a beautiful, beautiful marriage. But when we first started dating, I was so nervous to understand you know, what to say, uh, what I understood, what I didn't understand, how do I navigate all this? And, and in fact, she took me home after a few months. At Christmas time, she took me to her mom's house with her family. And then the next day was Kwanzaa. 
And I had never celebrated Kwanzaa. I had heard of it. But I'm like, well, what are you supposed to do in Kwanzaa? <laughs> and I have to say her family was both very patient and kind and kind of bemused at the same time. And it became this beautiful thing of folks talking through like, okay, we know we don't know each other. How do we bridge that? And that's a conversation I think we have to have in this whole country. I actually think we can. And I think the generation coming up is showing us all an amazing lesson of, of much more openness, much more desire to you know, connect with each other and respect each other. So I'm hopeful. But another point that I learned in my marriage is for so long, people of color in this country have been treated like there's something wrong with them. And my wife talked about this very point that she grew up thinking she wasn't pretty. She grew up thinking like there was something wrong with her because of the color of her skin and that things couldn't work out for her. She was very smart. She ended up going to Wellesley. She's a wonderful woman and, and with what you could tell would have been filled with promise from the beginning, but she felt all the messages around her said there was something wrong with her. And so I think if we say to our children from the beginning, they're beautiful, they're wonderful, they're special, they're, they're, they're our future, and we back it up, like give them the support they need, and that's why things like pre-K matter so much. I think we can change that atmosphere in this country. I really think we can. But I'll tell you that um, it's been a journey. And, and one of the things that has allowed me to govern the most di place, diverse place on earth, it really is. I mean, New York is everyone, is going through that humble journey and learning what I didn't know. And learning that sometimes it's as, as small but important a thing as just showing that love and respect for someone that they haven't felt a whole lot of that opens minds, opens doors to a better future. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Elizabeth. Along these same lines, obviously the obstacles faced by Africans, Amer African Americans are enormous. Share with us a personal adversity you faced in your own life that has made you a better leader. I talked about this, and it was hard to talk about it um, in the first debate. So, you know, I grew up in a household that was very, very troubled. And it was troubled because the man I looked up to, my dad, who was a decorated war hero from World War II, and I had tremendous respect for what he had done. He volunteered after Pearl Harbor. He was in the U.S. Army in the Pacific from the beginning of the war to the very last battle, Okinawa. And that horrible, horrible battle, he lost half of his leg to a grenade on Okinawa. And he came back a very different person, physically in pain, physically struggling. But as I was growing up, I saw the other part of it, which was what we now call PTSD. They didn't call it that then. And he, you could see before your very eyes, as a child, this guy I looked up to, just watching him decline. And he was depressed. He became an alcoholic. Uh, and in the end, when I was 18 years old, he took his life. And, you know, we have to understand that for all of those who serve us, Anyone who serves us in combat and comes home with these challenges, and for my dad, this is the case, the battle didn't kill him, but the war did. It, took, it played out over a long, long time. So growing up with that, um, I think it, it made me understand there are so many people who need help. My dad, you know, he was offered help, and he kept saying he didn't need it. 
And we didn't have a good enough mental health system either that made it easy to get help. And that's another thing that really woke me up to the fact there's so much that has to change. Because even if he had been receptive, there weren't that many places that he could have gone. And I think going through an experience like that, it, it, for me, uh, of course, it was very, very, it was sad, always. And, and you know, you could understand if someone went through that and said, I, I, I don't have a lot of hope. But I found some hope in the end because I just felt like it didn't have to be this way. And, and that has been sort of the, the reason I do this from that moment on was just people should not have to go through that. Families should not have to go through that. Next question comes from Benjamin Pelletier. Hello, Mayor. Hey, Benjamin. According to a New York Times article in early June, Donald Trump and yourself have high negative approval ratings in the state of New York. In a poll at the time, Donald Trump had an approval rating of 34% and a disapproval rating of 63%. You had an approval rating of 29% and a disapproval rating of 53%. Difference in net negative ratings is only 5%. How will you beat Donald Trump in a general election if he is more favorable than you in your own state? Well, first of all, I appreciate the question, but I, I've learned there's only one poll that matters, and it's the one where everyone participates. And I am someone who time and time again, um, I've been an underdog in every election I've been in. If you looked at the polling, you know, you wouldn't have given me the time of day. But the people make their own judgments and they make them over time seeing what someone has done. Um, I'm in a place everyone knows with really tough issues, a very tough news media. It's an environment that bluntly, it's not easy, but it's a, it's a really good preparation for dealing with the big issues and the conflicts ahead. I, I would caution that, yeah, being a leader sometimes comes with positive approval, negative, you go through all that, but it's a, a lot better to have walked through that fire, to gone through making the tough decisions, dealing with the crises before becoming president of the United States and having a whole world to have to think about than never having stood in those shoes. So the poll that matters, the one that the people actually participate in, I got elected mayor of New York City with 73% of the vote and a year and a half ago re-elected with 67% of the vote. After four years of service, almost the exact same number of people chose to keep me in office. And that to me is what really tells you uh, what people think of the work. I also think that when people in, in the course of this campaign hear a vision that means something to them, and know it's backed up by experience, that's going to mean a whole lot. Uh, and I say this about the people of New Hampshire I've spoken to who are tremendous interviewers and vetters and take so seriously this role, um, that in the end, people don't want to just hear words. They want to know you've done something with it. And sometimes making change is going to come with some controversy. But if you actually change people's lives, it's not just a policy paper, it's actual change in people's lives, including taking on some very powerful interests. I think that says who you really are. And our nominee, the Democratic nominee, is going to be put through their paces and scrutinized, and they better be able to show that they mean business, that they actually stand for what they say. And I have the ability to do that.
Thank you. Thank you. Thanks, Benjamin. And Mr. Mayor, that wraps up our half hour digitally here on Conversation with the Candidate. Thank you for joining us. Thank you to our town hall audience for all of your questions. Thanks for joining us for WMUR's The Trail, from New Hampshire to the White House. If you have a moment and can write a review or subscribe to this podcast, we'd certainly appreciate it. You can also find us on WMUR.com and our free WMUR app 24-7. See you for the next episode of this podcast next week.